0: Affiliate links, and that's another great way to support the podcast. Thank you for your generous attention.:
1: So Tik Han, who you all know, great inspiration in his teaching, um, was doing a lecture series at Plum Village. And, you know, he does lectures on smiling and joy, and he does lectures, some very profound ones, on the nature of consciousness, or the Heart Sutra and the Diamond Sutra, or different aspects of mindfulness. So he was going to talk on the Viharas, and he started to talk about love and how the awakened heart had these dimensions of love and compassion. and. Mudita, we did this afternoon, and joy, and what each of those qualities represented in consciousness, and so forth. And as he was going on, because he talked softly and slowly, people began to listen and drift off as we do when we've heard the same teachings a lot of times. And then partway through the first two minutes of the talk on the mind states of the Brahma Viharas and how they feed and balance one another he paused and he said she was just 21 years old when I first saw her walking down the stairway in the monastery outside of Hue in North Vietnam and all of these slumbering monks and nuns sat up and their eyes like no not when I saw her When I, yeah when I fell in love with her And then their eyes got really wide. Oh, this is going to be a good dharma talk. (laughs) And he proceeded to give a series of teachings on the Brahmaviharas that were one chapter on the usual teachings on the Brahmavihara and the other about how he'd fallen in love. He was a young monk with this nun at the monastery and what he did with that energy of love, not disrobing and not creating a marital partnership but yet at the same time carrying the love that he had for her. Um, And there's a way in which as we practice um, as I said it earlier today talking about mudita we can become too loyal to our suffering and to that identity that is our history, and our trauma, um, and the repetitive patterns that we notice, um, and so forth, or the unworthiness. Um, And they're really important for the first part of practice. And one of the things that I learned early on in teaching, um, because I'd also done this training in clinical psychology, was that the simple mindfulness of noting, in, out, thinking, thinking, rising, falling, hearing, hearing, this sort of simple bare, empty attention to the naming of the rivers, um, for a lot of people, uh, ended up um, with the spiritual bypass or the end run. And a lot of things that were actually there in them became ignored or didn't surface because they were concentrating on something else. You understand? And so I wrote about and said, you have to do healing. You have to attend to these things. They, too, have to be a part of your practice or you won't, they won't be integrated. And that was 30, 35 years ago or more. Hmm. Now... The instructions from the Dhammapada that you've heard, where the Buddha says, live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fears and attachments know, the sweet joy of abiding in the way. And it's a kind of amazing instruction and speaks a bit to the topics that were raised tonight and the big overarching theme of the retreat of identity. Who are you really? And as I experience people coming in at different times for our meetings, In some meetings, people would be really caught in their, how would Pascal say it, Um, doo-doo, right? Their shit. He had a whole Dharma teaching on that for us, as I recall. Thank you. People would be very caught in their patterns and their stuff. You know that. But then other times, they or somebody else would come in, and the stuff might still be there, but there was with it, a sense of the factors of awakening present, mindfulness, calm, spaciousness. Here's the stuff. But that's not who you are. That's just stuff. As I said, when Ajahn Chah went to his teacher and described all the good things, not to speak of the difficult ones he'd been through, the teacher said, you, you missed the point. You know, it's not the experience, but it is the spacious, loving awareness that is liberating. Many of you have heard the story of Jarvis Masters at San Quentin Prison. We've had, started from Spirit Rock, a a project in San Quentin Prison that's grown to the Insight Prison Project. And uh, prisons are one of the great tragedies, I think I talked about it a little earlier in this retreat, Um, and crimes of our society, the prison industrial complex. And if you don't, haven't educated yourself to the billions of dollars of the industry and the way that it captures and grabs people to keep the prisons full. Um, it is, uh, it's is—it's extremely painful and it. it's, it's one of the great injustices of our culture. It's actually a reflection of the injustice and the racism and so forth. But anyway, here's Jarvis, who's there on death row and had taken bodhisattva vows with Thrangu Rinpoche um, and was out in the yard He'd been doing his practice for some years. In the winter, in the yard at San Quentin... This is interesting because it really relates to this question of where you place your attention and identity. The yard in San Quentin is a kind of wild contrast because there's a chain-link fence, razor wire, guard towers, people with automatic weapons pointed down at you, and through the chain-link fence is kite surfers and sailboats in the Golden Gate Bridge, and it's one of the most magnificent pieces of real estate in all of California, and it's beautiful on Mount Tam. And there's the guards and the guns and the razor wire, and they're both there. So it was a winter day, and the seagull had come to land in the yard because there were big puddles from the previous rainstorm and was splashing around. And the young man next to Jarvis reached down to pick up a big rock to throw it at the seagull, and if you don't understand that gesture, then you haven't been hanging out with young men lately, because there's the hunting thing that happens at a certain point. Um, and uh, Jarvis, without thinking about it, because of his vow of non-harming, stuck out his hand. Don't do that. Well. You don't stop somebody bodily in prison like that. Everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people, you know, partly to preserve themselves, work out, buff, tattooed, you know, people who say, stay away from me, you know. It's a way of protecting themselves. And this young guy says, what are you doing, man? You know, and shouts at him, and the whole yard gets really quiet because something's going to come down you know, with that kind of conflict. And Jarvis turns to him and says, that bird got my wings. And the guy says, huh? And you know, kind of puts his rock down. If you're in trouble, say something really crazy like that and it will help you a little insane. Huh, what do you mean? And Jarvis, as he put the rock down, just sort of smiled and stood up and walked away and the seagull flew away. And for two weeks after that, people on the cell block and in the prison would go up to Jarvis and say, Jarvis, what would you mean that bird got my wings? What would you mean? And it's like a koan, right? And Jarvis would just smile and not say anything. But you know. And everybody who heard it knew somewhere in your being and in your spirit know, when he says, that bird got my wings, that they can put your body in prison. Or you can have the kinds of suffering that some of you have had in your past, but your spirit is free. And this is really the meaning of freedom. The freedom isn't the freedom of having pleasure and no pain, or birth and no death, or, you know, light and not dark, or, you know, sun and moon or whatever, you know, of the opposites that you want, um, sweet and not sour, and so forth. Um, Pleasure and pain, gain and loss. Praise and blame. Anybody not have that? Raise your hand. You can be excused. (laughs) So here we are. We're born into this amazing human incarnation of the dualities of joy and sorrow and praise and blame. And the freedom that's possible, the freedom that the Buddha invited you, he said, if it were not possible for this human heart to be free in any circumstance, I would not teach you to do so. But just because it is possible for you, it is your birthright, so I teach you. Live in joy in love even among those who hate. They've joy in health even among the afflicted. It doesn't say there won't be hate or affliction or conflict or trouble and so forth, but it said this is what's possible for you, and it's part of what's possible in this beautiful training that we've done, that you've devoted yourself to. Now somebody might raise their hand and say, yeah, I did it, but I'm not sure it worked. You know, maybe I should have taken a month in uh, St. Bart's, right? Or Bermuda or wherever you think it should have been. Um, Some vacation, I'd be better off. I was in the Miami airport some years ago, traveling from one retreat to another, like like John spoke of being the Dharma pilgrim. Only he goes up to 18,000 feet in Mount Kailash. <sighs> I was in Miami anyway, William. Um, and um, I'm walking through Miami airport, and this person comes up to me and says, Jack, and I say, hi. I kind of look, do I know this person? He says, do you remember me? I sat the three-month course in 78 um, at IMS, <laughs> you know. And I vaguely remembered him. Um, especially if you work with somebody, as we do individually, those then there's, there's some kind of be- beautiful bond that happens. And he said, you know, he said, I, I would have considered myself a failure in meditation. I had some experiences back then, and I got into it, but then I got into, you know, the construction industry, and I had this company, and I did all these things and whatever, and I really stopped sitting, and I thought, man, You know, I've lost it. But last year I had a heart attack. And 911, they were wheeling me down the hall of the hospital on the gurney in the way to have emergency heart surgery. And the only thing that mattered and that helped was that practice. He said, I came back to my breath and body. I did a compassion practice. I was just there. He said, and it all came back in a moment. Because I'd spent those two or three months way back then, 30 years before. He said, I would have, you know, I would have thought that I'd lost it. Or, you, you know, that you, Jack, would have said, Oh, you're a failure. But you're not failures, you may be slow. <laughs> <laughs> And something in you knows this. You know, something in you knows very deep in your being that there's a possibility in any moment for being caught in experience. Whether it's anger, as somebody talked about, or just not living so fully, or unworthiness that was brought up. How do you have worthiness without self, I would say go for the worthiness with the self for a long time. The self will drop away later. You know, It's like, how do I have dignity without a self? Go for the dignity. One of the interesting things when you read the Buddhist teachings, and this text on joy really speaks to it, is half of them talk about emptiness. No eyes, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, that's the Heart Sutra, but looking at the senses as they were dissected in the Five Rivers' description from Pascal so beautifully. Um, uh, sounds appear and disappear, sights arise and vanished thoughts come and go, steps, wherever you look, um, things can't be grasped as I or mine. You start to see the selflessness of them, the ephemerality of them, the dreamlike quality. What happened to this retreat? You know, all those days of Joy and angst and opening and contraction so forth, they're gone. And every, that's emptiness. You know, you want emptiness, it's here. Like the beginning of the talk is now back with the pyramids and Kublai Khan, you know, and the dinosaurs and stuff. It's back in the void. It's just disappeared. So did your breakfast. It's gone. And everything does, right? You want to see emptiness, just look around the Buddha opens us to see that, so we don't hold on. And half the texts are about that letting go. But the other half are about dignity, calm, courage, uh, presence, justice. There's a whole series of texts about what it means for a human being to treat another person with respect. And buried Over and over in the teachings that you would say, vipassana or emptiness or or whatever, woven together with it are the stories of the respect for each being. The respect for the woman at the well, that beautiful story of Ananda offering, you know, asking for water and her saying, I'm too low born to pollute you with my touching of your food, and you said, I didn't ask for your your caste or your class or your... I just asked for some water lady, you know, and she falls in love with him. You heard that story. I think you know that story. But there are many like it. In the first seven volumes of the preserved teachings, which are the Vinaya, and, oh, it's the rules for the monks and nuns, a good part of them are about respect and justice and what's honorable in treating one another well. So there's dignity, there's justice, there's respect, there is calm, equanimity, steadiness, there's the image of the awakened one, you know, and they're not slouches. I mean, you look back here, the backup we've got here, and here's the Buddha, he's very, you know, upright and present, touching the earth. And then, of course, we felt a great absence, and we had a Kuan Yin for a while, but the particular when we had was a little bit androgynous-looking, and we needed something that I thought felt a little more like it carried the feminine in a more visible fashion, <laughs> as you may notice. And so Ida Bagus Oka, who was a priest in Bali and one of the foremost, um, beside being one of the high priests, was also one of the foremost artists in Bali, who is a friend, said, can you make us a representation of the awakened feminine? This is Prajnaparamita, which means she is the mother of the Buddha and the embodiment of the awakened feminine. And voila, a couple of years later, shipping crate comes and here she is. So with emptiness, as we get emptier, more spacious, more open in some way, there also comes a sense not of self as some small sense of self, but rather of the beauty of the awakened mind and heart that is um, dignified, worthy, um, gracious, and generous, that finds joy or freedom, as Jarvis did, no matter what. And this is your birthright. And so, yes, these other things come. Anger will come. Half the time, anger comes really because you're hurt or you're afraid. And if you notice when you become angry um, and you feel underneath it, like any of these patterns that keep repeating and coming back, if you drop from the thought pattern down into the body and into the feelings, you start to notice, well, under, feel the anger, okay. I had a lot of anger in my practice because I had a great well of it unexpressed from my childhood because my father was so violent and angry I was never going to be like him. And I stuffed it all. And then when I started to meditate, it all said, Hi, remember me? You know, it all came out. But if you pay attention to anger and get curious, the Greeks call anger a noble emotion because there's a certain clarity in it. It seeks for justice in some way. But underneath it also, there is often a sense of hurt or wrong or betrayal. Or fear, angry because you're afraid, not what's happening, but it's going to get worse or it will hurt you or someone else. And then if you can pay attention to that and speak or act from that place, which is a different kind of intention, then you can address the very same situation without fueling it with more anger, but saying, this, is, this scares me, or, or this hurts, or this feels like it will hurt someone else, or this seems really wrong, it's hurtful, let us do something about it and all this comes from the training that you've been doing of presence of loving awareness of allowing yourself to sit when the storms and the you know the spring blossoms and then the you know Alaskan cold or it's not that cold but it got cold again and it was warm and it's cold and and but that's just the outer stuff you know what I'm really talking about And you don't believe it so much. You get to where you don't take your mind so seriously, I hope. And there was a person who left a retreat that we were teaching in Palm Springs, get on a flight, the airport there, the Yucca Valley retreat, three weeks of practice, very still and so forth. Went into the airport and bought in the shop there for the flight, got a, like a nice novel to read and a bag of some really yummy-looking cookies, you know. Once you leave the retreat, you can choose your sweets, right? That awaits you. So she went into the boarding gate area and sat down. You know, there's like two or three chairs and then a little table between them and then two or three more chairs, right? And sitting in her chair with a little table in between, um, reading her book, bag of cookies there. And then the person on the other side of that table opened the bag of cookies (laughs) and took one out and ate it. She turned and looked at that person. He smiled and tipped the bag to her like, would you like one? (laughs) So she took a cookie and ate it. All right. Then he reached in and ate another cookie. It was one of those small bags. She ate one too. Pretty soon there was like one cookie left. He held it up. Okay, you want? Broke it in half. Okay. She had various feelings arise. But because she had been doing the very practice that you're doing, she could see her mind. She could see the judgment. Is this guy crazy? He took my cookies. and you know, I mean, all the things that you think about the people sitting around you at certain points, or yourself, or they think about you, or whatever. You know how that goes. Anyway, all of that. And then they called the plane. She got on. She settled in her seat, put her purse down there, got out her novel, and as she was pulling her novel out of her big purse, she noticed the unopened bag of cookies, her cookies. And in fact, he had bought the same kind of cookies, and it was she who was (laughs) taking his cookies. (laughs) And he was quite generous. I hope you have seen this. This is part of enlightenment. Enlightenment isn't a destination. It's not a place that you get to, it's not a state you can have. Suzuki Roshi said, when you discover the fact that everything changes and find your composure in it, there you find yourselves in nirvana. Kind of amazing things, so simple, like his statement of Zen Mind, beginner's mind. When you realize the fact that everything changes, we kind of know it, but when you realize it, when you realize the fact that everything changes and then find your composure in it, then you find yourself in nirvana. So the beautiful thing about the fruits on the way and enlightenment is that enlightenment is either here and now or never. Yes, there's a journey, and it's fun to make up the journey and imagine, and we do take the path, and the eightfold path, the Buddha used the word walking the path, bhati bot putting your foot where the footprint goes and all of that. But if you take a look at the eightfold path, you notice actually that it starts and ends like a circle. It starts with wise understanding and so forth, and then you go through virtue and the training of... Wise effort and concentration, mindfulness, and then it ends with wise understanding. And it turns out, as T.S. Eliot says, that, um, how does the line go? We shall not cease from exploring, and the end of all exploration will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. The reality of the present is all there is. And in this reality, you can be identified with the small sense of self, with its limitations and fears, and when it's very tight, it leads to conflict, and when a whole society has it, it leads to you know, war and, and uh, you know, economic exploitation and racism and environmental destruction, because we feel separate. Or, in a moment, you can recognize that small sense of self in the body of fear of its nature honor it or this is the personality this is the small sense of self thank you for your opinion you know notice what it has to say and remember that that's not the the real truth that's not who you are and who you are is this loving awareness itself the witnessing of all things, the spaciousness that was here before you were born, the knowing that will be here after you die. Now, somebody mentioned creativity. And I have a story which isn't in front of me, but I'll remember it, of a man who is an artist who said, um, I'm an artist and uh, I feel like my art is something that keeps me connected to the world and really alive. And we all have in us some creative impulse. He said, but I was in the hospital recently. My wife who was pregnant had complications at the end of the pregnancy." And was rushed in for an emergency cesarean section. And when the doctor was headed in to do the emergency surgery, I introduced myself. I told him I was an artist and a you know, a creative the my, creative life was what I spent my time doing. He said, "Oh, I wish I'd been an artist. I actually wish I'd been a musician. that's what speaks to me." And then he went in, came out a bit later with the joyful news that he said, my wife had delivered this beautiful baby girl, everything was fine. And as he was telling me this, one of his colleagues walked up and said, excuse me, doctor, it was an honor to be there for this cesarean with you. You just performed beautifully in there. And one of the nurses, someone, he said, thank you. And then I looked at him and I said, all right, you know, because of the emergency, you've just saved my wife's life. You brought another child into the world. One of your colleagues say it's an honor to work with you. Your work is so beautiful. How can you say you wish you were an artist or a musician? And he nodded and said, yeah, it went pretty well in there, he said. And I know why, too, because I got up early this morning and spent an hour playing Chopin at the piano. And there's some way in which each of you, when you leave here, has to listen to that which makes your dharma come alive and sing in you. And it might be walking in nature, and it might be painting, and might be playing the piano, or making music, or dancing. Or what? Making love. It might be making love, says Pascal. (laughs) It might even just be sitting. You know, maybe that's what makes your practice come alive and sing. I like nothing more in the world than just listening, sitting on my ass, being happy, doing nothing. And it's not my fault I have this attitude because I happen to have an amazingly comfortable ass. It may not look like much, but if you could sit on on this baby for two minutes, you'd realize that getting off this ass would be a crime against nature. So the point isn't to make a grim duty out of it, but maybe to let your meditation also be a little bit like lovemaking that it's lovemaking with your breath or with the emotions or with the breathing that opens and you say, oh, here's a closed breath and an open breath, and here's the small self you know, crying and telling its story and whining and berating me and things like that. They're there, it's okay, you know, and you breathe with it, and pretty soon you're kind of dancing with that, and then there's the space of awareness again. And you find what brings you alive because the point of it isn't to make this a grim duty. Awareness itself is aliveness. And I don't know, did I tell the story about Wes, who's here in the back, going to interview Gary Snyder in this retreat? No. So Gary, as you know, Pulitzer Prize-winning poet, you know, great beatnik figure with... uh, um, Kerouac and all those, and um, one of the original vocal American environmentalists starting in the 1950s and 60s in these beautiful ways, earth household and various things like that. So he's now in his 80s, and Wes went to interview him for The Inquiring Mind. And one of the first questions, the first one that he asked is, Alright, here you are looking back over a life of environmental activism and all the things you've done. One of the progenitors of bioregionalism, all kinds of great things. He said, and you see the extinction of species and global climate disruption and all the kinds of losses and struggles that we have with the environment. What message do you have for people? You know, what do you want to say to us from your place in the Sierras? Kitkadizzi is its name, his place. And he said, don't feel guilty. He said, if you try to save it out of guilt, it won't work. It's the same thing. It's a grim duty. Don't feel guilty. Save it because you love it. Practice because you love it. And I don't mean practice to make yourself better, but practice to come alive, to open the compassion of your heart, to be present for each moment as much as you can for one another. That's really the expression of freedom that is both the fruit on the way and the enlightenment that comes. And trust. Trust something so much bigger than the small mind and the small sense of self. You've all learned trust here in a very deep way just by the fact that you've stuck with it. Like the guy in the Miami airport who thought he might have been a failure and in fact wasn't at all. You've learned something deep in the cells and bones and marrow of your being. Pablo Neruda, the great poet, maybe I used his line in the first talk, you can pick all the flowers, but you can't stop the spring. There's some inviolable beauty and joy and life force in the human spirit that waits for the littlest bit of rain to poke itself up through the cracks in the sidewalk, you know, to stop the person who's going to throw the rock at the seagull, to express what is your birthright, your beauty, your true nature. And it's not some big self-conscious thing and you don't go back, okay, now I completed two months or a month and... I'm a yogi and tell everybody, spare them. (laughs) They don't really want to know, for the most part, anyway. They wouldn't understand. Okay, I'm going to talk about the aggregates, the rivers, you know, or I'm going to talk about whatever it happens to be, emptiness, there you go. Or tell you what happened in the middle of my retreat. They don't want to know, you know, and if they ask you a bunch... Then you can say, It made me happy in some way or other. And then they shut up. That's all they need to know is that, it, you know, they didn't know why you did it. You don't have to sales pitch them or anything. Why do you do it? It makes me happy. It helps me. I feel better on a good day, right? <laughs> so you trust. And you trust that you're part of some great weave of life. And this is really what the bodhisattva does. The bodhisattva is the name, as you know, for a bodhi, a compound word. Bodhi is liberated. And sattva is a being committed to the liberation of all. so beautiful to take bodhisattva vows like the Shantideva ones that the Dalai Lama takes every morning. May I be a bridge to cross the raging stream. May I be a boat. May I be a path. For those to cross the flood. May I be a lamp in the darkness. May I be food for the hungry and medicine for the sick and a tree of miracles for all who yearn. May I be a resting place for the weary an illumination for those lost in the dark night. And may I do this bringing sustenance and awakening to all beings in every form in all places for as long as earth and sky, sun, moon, and galaxies exist until we all awaken together. Something like that in the morning. May I have a, you know. So you hear that and you say, wait a second, this is ridiculous. Because the short version is, I vow to, you know, sentient beings are numberless, I vow to save them all or awaken them all. So what do you do? Okay, Which sentient being are you going to start with? <laughs> the one sitting next to you here? She needs awakening help, right? Or him? Or the ones in your family? The problem is, they don't want to be awakened by you. You may have noticed that, right? <laughs> so then you have to figure out, well, what could this bodhisattva vow mean? And you discover that it doesn't mean that you are going to go out and awaken somebody else, but by your own dignity and courage by your own liberation of heart that you find, that you have been finding here. You demonstrate that liberation and awakening and you offer it to everyone you touch. It becomes the compass of your heart so that whether you succeed or fail or things are hard or easy, your offering is compassion and freedom, and wakefulness in that circumstance for whatever you touch. Do not depend, says Thomas Merton, the great Christian mystic, do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and achieve no results at all. This to all of you who are activists, because we've had a lot of burned-out activists come on retreats. If not, perhaps, at times, bring about its opposite, your work. As you understand this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, and the truth of the work itself. And this is what's given to you, to quiet your mind, to open the great heart of compassion and joy, which is your birthright, live in joy, in this troubled world and in this unbearably beautiful world. Live in joy, live in love, and then plant the seeds of this in each garden, which is each person, each place that you work. Um, What a great way to live.
0: Thanks everybody for listening to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We appreciate your support. And we ask you to continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash jack. Look forward to seeing you next week.